I've always been very interested in trying new things. And one of the things I did when I left the job is I took out a piece of paper and I drew a line down the middle. And on one side, I wrote down things I would like to try. And then the other side, I wrote the kind of people I'd like to try it with. I really believe life is about chapters and chapters are chances. When you finish a chapter, you don't stop. It's not the end of the book. You start the new chapter and the new chapter has a whole set of possibilities or chances and then you make choices. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about, how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. show, we're continuing our conversation with P&G alumni leader, A.G. Laffley, P&G's former CEO. It was a great conversation about some of his personal experiences outside of the company and his take on the past, present, and future beyond P&G. This is actually part two of a much longer discussion. We aired part one last week where we discussed his early life and career at P&G. You can find part one of our conversation in your podcast feed or subscribe in your favorite podcasting app. AG needs no introduction, but here's a quick bio. AG Laffley served as P&G CEO twice from 2013 to 2015 and from 2000 to 2009, when I actually began my career. But he actually started at the company in 1977 after receiving his MBA from Harvard, serving in the U.S. Navy in Japan, and getting a BA from Hamilton College. Once at P&G, AG rose through the ranks, working on some of the company's biggest innovations like Liquid Tide and Tide with Bleach. He then led all of PNG's Asian operations through much of the 90s, turning to head PNG's fast growing beauty business and all of North America's sales. Upon becoming CEO in 2000, AG revitalized the company under the mantra Consumer is Boss, focusing the company on billion dollar brands and establishing many new brands, categories, and approaches to innovation. And beyond PNG, AG's actually remained active in the world of business and entrepreneurship, serving on President Obama's Jobs Council, chairing the Cincinnati Center City Development Corp and serving on the boards of Dell, GE, Legendary Entertainment, and Snapchat. AG has received numerous honors, including an Edison Achievement Award, and in 2013, he co-wrote the book Playing to Win, which has defined his continued passion for innovation and entrepreneurship. In this second part of our conversation, we geeked out a bit on all the things AG did outside of P&G, getting involved in the realms of local and national politics, entertainment, big tech, healthcare, and startups. I really enjoyed AG's informed take on the importance of public and private partnerships in our society. But as you can imagine, AG's point of view is really influenced by so many of the fundamental purpose values and principles he practiced while at PNG. We even talked quite a bit about his personal life, how he views the future, and what he does for fun. But in case you want to hear about AG's early life and time at PNG, be sure to check out part one of our conversation. But for now, let's jump back in for part two of our conversation with AG Laughlin. So, AG, you haven't stopped. <laughs> you have this boundless energy. In both of your post-CEO chapters, you've actually done some really high-profile work on Obama's Jobs Council, 
at Legendary Entertainment, which I will personally thank you for helping shepherd films like 300, Batman, and Superman, and even advising social media giant Snap. And it's very different on the surface from a lot of the things and experiences you had in your years at P&G around the world. How have you applied the learnings from that long career at P&G into all of these extremely different ventures and vice versa? What are the new things that you've learned at, at these places? Well, I really believe life is about chapters and chapters are chances. And when you finish a chapter, you don't stop. It's not the end of the book. You start the new chapter and the new chapter has a whole set of possibilities or chances, and then you make choices. So chapters, chances, and choices. And I've always been very interested in trying new things. Probably the most predictable thing I did was join Clayton Dubler and Rice, and I spent three years in private equity. Tremendous learning. Tremendous learning. I mean, I won't bore you with the details, but we took positions in so many different companies and so many different industries and you just get up the learning curve and you come to realize that a lot of the values, principles, and concepts are very similar, but then they have to be adapted and applied, right? To the industry, the company, the organization, the situation at hand. I was very fortunate to frankly stumble into these opportunities like Legendary, like Snapchat, like Figs, like Omeza, which is a startup healthcare company. And I just am so grateful because either I heard about it and inquired or somebody called me and said, hey, would you be interested in talking to Evan? Okay, at Snap. And I sure, why not? Why would he want to talk to me? So they were a chance to learn more and a chance to stretch myself and frankly, a chance to work with a whole bunch of interesting and new people. And one of the things I did when I left the job the first time is I took out an old fashioned piece of paper and I drew a line down the middle. And on one side, I wrote down things I would like to try. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then the other side I wrote were the kind of people I'd like to try it with, right? And that has just served me so well. Now to directly get at your question, again, I think the alumni appreciate this a lot better than the current employees. You learn more than you thought you were learning at P&G. 100%. P&G yeah. is an incredible learning machine, right? And and you learn it from sort of the principles and the strategies, right? And the process and the practices, but you learn so much from each other. And that goes back to this talent thing. When you have this incredible mix of talent, and by the way, this talent, almost all of them have an incredible work ethic. They're impatient. They take the initiative. They're self-starters. So it's just this incredible stew that you're in where you almost can't help but learn a lot. And uh, I found that so much of it is reapplicable. I mean, fundamentally, Snapchat is about who is my customer, who is my primary user, and how do these 13 to 24-year-olds get attracted to Snap, come onto the app? What do they do when they're there? What drives their engagement? what drives their 
bringing friends aboard and what products and services do they want next? And it's the same thing at Legendary. I, I was smiling when you said that you really love the 300 and the Batman and Superman series. And you probably won't admit this, but I bet you watched Hangover Weekend with your friends. <laughs> and you were our target. Our target was we, we called you fanboys. Okay. And I don't know if this is you, but a lot of the fanboys grew up with comic books, right? And, and they grew up with games and they were the equivalent of Trekkies in my generation, right? And, and once we understood that that was our primary target, then Your we had a prospect. ton of success. Yeah, prime prospect. Once we understood that, we had a ton of success because what they do, you guys watch movies more than once. And you bring your friends to movies and then you bring your partner to the movie and then you <laughs> bring your kids to the movie and you go, Hey, you got to see this movie, the 300, there's nothing like it. And so it's no different than selling Tide or selling Febreze or selling Olay. It's just a different product or service, right? In a totally different world. And I guess the last thing I would say is I really like small private fast moving. We work 110% on what matters and what happened to large publics and, and part of it's their fault, but part of it I'm, I'm afraid is our regulatory and legal system. But I just had to get off public boards because the board meetings were all about governance, hedging risk, risk management, everything but the business. And what I loved about board meetings was chewing on a business problem with Scott Cook and Meg and Jim and Terry and the whole team. That's what was fun, right? I'd get 12 different perspectives on an opportunity or problem that we were chewing on. And what I absolutely couldn't take was one more conversation about how we were going to manage this regulation or this new law or this legal threat. And it's, it's sad I hope we can change that or at least slow it down. But small companies are, for the most part, not in that world. They're just not in that world until they get big, right? As, the, <laughs> as Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Facebook are now realizing. <laughs> well, I, I want to pick a, on the other part of that high-profile work is it was almost a public-private sort of thing when you were on Obama's job council. What was the nature of that kind of work? And, and yeah, honestly, I mean, how did you reconcile the thing you just said with, with being there? Yeah, no, that's fair. Look, the other huge legacy of P&G was what constitutes healthy growth, what mm -hmm. constitutes value creation. Mm -hmm. And it isn't just about selling a product and driving sales and generating profits and cash. It's about changing in a positive way the community in which you live and work. And then ultimately the society that, that the talent's going to come from and that your consumers live in, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that really hit home with me. I, I was involved really early on with Big Brother. Oh my God, I was involved with the Playhouse, with the Symphony, with yeah. United Way, with Fine Arts Fund, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you just get involved in the community and that sticks, right? And so I have become a fairly big believer in the power and potential of what are commonly called private-public or public-private mm -hmm. partnerships. And I think we touched on this in an earlier conversation, but the biggest one of all time that I'm aware of, other than perhaps World War II, which mm -hmm. arguably the U.S. was able to prevail because we were able to turn our commercial and industrial and manufacturing power to be, yeah, to be the tipping point, right? 
But the biggest one in my lifetime was the whole Apollo program, right? And that was when I was in high school and when I was in college, right? And JFK had the vision. We're going to put a man on the moon. NASA had the elements, key elements of the strategy and frankly understood they were going to train the astronauts who were going to come out of the military. And the rest of it, a lot of the rest of it, the inventions, the innovation, the engineering, the problem solving was done by literally thousands of small, medium and large private companies. And they spawned literally thousands of inventions and innovation that spilled over into the commercial and industrial um, sectors. So that was like a big eureka for me. And then the second one was Center City Development. Yeah. In Cincinnati, honestly. 3CDC. Yeah, 3CDC. Really, it was the last thing I wanted to do at the time. It came too early. We were still working our way through some business challenges and we were just having early glimmers of what was possible and and how we could really perform as a company. But I understood that Cincinnati, frankly, wasn't in good shape in in those days. We had a lot of issues. I won't go through them all. They're well-known. They were well-publicized at the time. And uh, the combination of a couple of players on our team, uh, the Cincinnati Business Council and the mayor at the time, Charlie Lucan, convinced me that I needed to take it on. And so we figured out a way to take it on. But I mean, I still track 3CDC. I stay in touch with Steve Leeper and his team. I don't know what the numbers are. Over $1.5 billion has been invested in the core and areas adjacent to the core. The job's not done or it'll never be done. But way more people in the city and the community and the region are coming to Fountain Square, going to Washington Park, going to Smale Riverfront Park. And frankly, beyond the economic and social value it has, it brings a community together. And and the cool thing about public-private partnerships is really simple. You bring resources to bear on a problem or opportunity that neither the government nor the private sector can, can bring alone. So oftentimes the government has to provide the policy lead and, and the private side brings a pretty good sized chunk of the money and they bring a lot of the talent. And if you can bring that talent, that's what makes a difference. It's and almost like the, in, the public is the bold vision, right? The backstop. Yeah. We want this. We endorse this happening, putting a man on the moon. And the private is the execution where you can't, you can't have a yeah. vision without execution. And sometimes the public side is the vision, put a man on the moon. Sometimes the public side is, hey, we have a chronic problem mm. in the center of Cincinnati. People are coming here to work and they can't get out of town fast enough as soon as the workday is over, right? Right. So yeah, sometimes it's a problem, sometimes it's a vision. But yeah, a lot of the resources and a lot of the help with the problem solving comes from the private side. And the, the Bay Park I'm involved with in, in Sarasota right now, which is a lot of fun, is the same kind of thing. The Jobs Council, I had tremendous enthusiasm for. I had been on a Bush delegation that went to China and helped the Chinese work their way through recovering from the earthquakes in Chengdu, which was a public-private partnership and actually a good international partnership between the U.S. and China, which I by the way, believe we need more of too. But the problem with the Jobs Council is it was a great idea. And before we really got off the ground, because it was going to lead to a lot of public-private partnerships for totally changing the way we do job training and retraining, 
combining public community colleges with private company technical and other job training programs. I mean, they're just a whole bunch of really good ideas. But we ran into the election cycle. So we started up and unfortunately now the campaign begins two years before the election Mm -hmm. and you get bogged down in differences in the two parties policies. And my point of view on a lot of that is, come on, who doesn't see that we need dramatic improvements in infrastructure in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. I mean, really, okay? The roads, third world in too many states and counties. The bridges falling down, right? The railway system, 50 years out of date. The New York subway system, for crying out loud. Broadband, when I could go on and on. And I sincerely believe that there's got to be public-private solution. And again, it's going to be multi-decade. It's going to be more like Apollo. We're not going to fix infrastructure overnight. We're going to have to commit to a 10 or 20 years initiative. Same, by the way, for climate change and and, and real environmental sustainability. Those are multi-decade initiatives. And as you said, it, it has to be public and private. I agree. No way, no other way around it. Another thing that you've done is you've taken the concept that you co-wrote in your book, Playing to Win, and you're actively investing that approach, your time and your resources into helping the next generation of entrepreneurs and innovators. Why does this matter so much to you, AJ? I'd say in the last um, five to seven years, I've come to two or three realizations. One is that the fastest growing and arguably most dynamic part of the U.S. economy, and this is true in a lot of other countries around the world, is the small business sector. And that small business sector is, I don't know, under 100, under 500 employees. It includes startup and early stage, but it includes a lot of proprietorships and partnerships, right? A lot of the retail and service businesses that we all count on day in and day out for a better life, frankly. Then you look at the number of freelancers and independent operators growing by leaps and bounds. More and more of us are liking the independence and freedom that we have to go and be the change or make a difference on something that we care about, whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, whether it's a particular cause, whether it's local, regional, whatever. And then the third thing is, as I started to work with several of these small businesses and nonprofits, you realize they're at a tremendous disadvantage. They, a lot of cases, they didn't have a shot at the kind of educations that we did. And most P&Gers and P&G alums did. Even if they did, they didn't get much, what I would call business or, or leadership training. They are always under-resourced, often underfunded. So they're improvising and working from week to week, sometimes day to day. Yeah. And so you sort of add all this stuff up and you say, wow, there is an unmet need here. Okay. There's this huge customer segment that's increasingly becoming the boss of a bigger and bigger share of our economy. How can we help them? So we're playing with something. It's in beta test. We call it leading to win. Right now it's mostly publishing site with some videos and some articles and some stuff that's all about leadership. Strategy is thinking leadership, right? Doing is, there's a doing leadership component and, and frankly, management tools and techniques that are easily understood and readily applied. 
Okay. And we're just trying to see if we get any uptake. We've been live for, I don't know, six weeks. We've got four or 500 people that have come to the site. We've got, I don't know, 1500 page views. We're changing every week and trying different things and we'll, we'll broaden and, and, and see where it goes. But again, my view is it's a service and if the customer sees it as a service and the service delivers, right? So it delivers the performance they want and need, and it's a good value free. We like the pricing, then it'll get used. And uh, if it gets used, I'm going to feel pretty good about it. And if it doesn't get used, it's like a whole bunch of other things I've tried in life that didn't work. You go, well, what did I learn from that? And I'll try something again, try something new. Well, what I like about it is you mentioned this earlier, when you leave a professional environment, you kind of don't know how much until you've left. And literally back in the day, saying things like explaining prime prospects or first moment of truth or consumer is boss to people who weren't, hate to say, ingrained in the culture in every conversation you had, people are like, oh my gosh, and they start taking notes. You don't know what you don't know until you go on the outside. And so it's almost like bringing this almost insider knowledge to the outside to to let a lot of flowers bloom because there are a lot of people trying a lot of things and with a little push with a little bit of extra strategy with a little bit of extra approach they can bloom faster so i think that's why it's really beautiful to almost give back yeah it's been honestly a little bit amazing and incredibly heartening to see how many of these concepts that we worked on together are relevant important and very applicable to other industries and across the outside world. And uh, I've yet to be in a business, a nonprofit, or frankly, a government that shouldn't be focusing more on the customer. If government focused more on the citizen and the needs of the citizen, can you imagine where we'd be? It'd just be incredible. And I also haven't been anywhere where the people don't make the difference. And those are two things that I just learned at P&G. And then the other corollaries are, it's all about innovation. Innovation creates the product or service to begin with, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and innovation continues to improve it, right? So it stays relevant and it stays preferred. So there's just a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, every time I look at, Roger and I are very grateful that people still by playing to win, it's still selling. They're still reading it. And by the way, we, I give away every penny earned to one of our nonprofit causes. But I think the reason that it's still resonating is because it's such a simple but valid and easy to apply approach to basic strategy. It's almost um, mentorship at scale. <laughs> with the knowledge and experience. But in that vein, who have been your mentors and leaders that you've kind of listened to and their advice has kind of shaped your career? Because and I, and I want to ask the question two ways. Like on the inside coming up through PNG, who did you go to for advice? But even as you got to that top seat, I'm assuming you had to get some of that advice from outside. So who are who are a couple of those folks and what did you learn from them? Okay, I guess I'd say there were sort of three groups. I mentioned the others and it the names won't matter, mm-hmm. but teachers and coaches in elementary school, high school, at Hamilton College, 
at Harvard Business School were instrumental. Most of our teachers are not memorable and really weren't that good, but the few <laughs> that were outstanding. They make a mark. They made a huge mark, right? And in some cases, just the fact that they showed a little bit of interest in this kind of awkward, gawky, somewhat nerdy guy was very, very enabling, right? Very motivating. So that's been an important one. But the company, I'll just mention for, I mean, John Pepper was my first division manager. John Pepper was so supportive of me off and on throughout. And he was with me when we were both struggling through what to do with the company in 2000, et cetera. But I would say John Smale, even though I don't think I was ever in his office more than three or four times, and I can remember every time, <laughs> was incredibly important to me because I watched him change the course of the company strategically over the decade of the 80s. And he struggled through some really bad years. We had a down profit year in the first half of the 80s, and he changed the strategy, changed category management invested in R&D and innovation, led a lot of big changes, took the first restructuring, which wasn't fun, was painful, but it needed to be done. The other one was Steve Donovan. I worked for Steve off and on. This is a guy uh, that convinced you not to quit. Yeah. And I think he'd smile if he heard me say this. One of his nicknames, many nicknames was the plumber. And he got the dirty jobs, laundry and cleaning when it was struggling, the food and beverage business when it was really struggling. And I think the company was trying to figure out whether they should hang on to it. But the guy was just very good at digging into problems, solving problems, and driving operations and execution that delivered. And I learned a lot from him. Had high standards, very demanding. The other one was Dirk. I was very fortunate to run into Dirk when he first came back from Asia. He was larger than life. Dirk was not shy. He had a vision for many things, and he had an opinion on what you could do better and what the business could do better. But I always enjoyed our conversations, and I always enjoyed his probing and his poking around and his kind of Dutch impatience with the way things were. Hmm. And I uh, worked for him. Part of the time I was in Asia, I developed an appreciation for what he started to do in Japan. And our team tried to build on that. And it was sad. When he resigned in 2000, and I was sort of the, really the accidental CEO, but I learned so much from him. And I tried very hard to keep the innovation candle lit and burning. And I tried very hard to keep the external world, starting with the consumer, mm, mm. including the customer, including the supplier and competitor and all of that front and center. And, and I think Dirk helped me understand that that, that was an incredibly important part of success in business. And frankly, that it was a bit of a gap in P&G's culture. In a way, Dirk was another uh, probably outside insider. And we came from totally different backgrounds, 
very different cultures, but I think we might've had a bit of that in common. I guess the last thing I would say is I mentioned Peter Drucker. I was very fortunate to have Michael Porter teach a business policy class in his first year at Harvard Business School. And I got to know Michael and Roger Martin because they started Monitor. Monitor was Porter's consulting arm. I got to know Clay Christensen. He was teaching at school and I stayed close to him. I mean, landmark, landmark books on on innovation and innovator's dilemma and what's really disruptive. Yeah, yeah. But I always wanted to have enough voices on the outside to keep me objective, connected, and frankly, honest with myself and uh, and realistic with the company on the inside. So I think that was my motivation, but I've learned from a ton of people. I'm learning from everybody that I work with, with today. I mean, I could go through company by company, individual by individual. I'm just, I'm drinking through a fire hose. That's great. Right? Well, what if we flip that? So you've, I'm going to butcher this quote, but to those who much is given and you've learned a lot, much is expected. Your kids, what would they say? that they've learned from you. Well, in preparation for this, since the kids are the boss, <laughs> I didn't assume or presume I asked, and they're both very different, okay? So I would say the oldest one. <laughs> and and, you're, and you're, your kids are about the same age, our target audience, our prime prospects. So yeah, I'm very Patrick, curious about uh, this. Yeah, Patrick's 48, three kids, two teenagers and one who thinks she's a teenager <laughs> and, and Alex is 34, right? So I have one Gen X, one Gen Y. Alex has one, one young one, a bit over a year old. And he's in Atlanta working on his third startup. Patrick's in, in Cincinnati working on a family wealth management and financial management partnership that he and a couple other guys started. But at any rate, yeah, the oldest one focused on, I guess I would say standards, setting high standards, being demanding, but caring. This is he what they learned from you. Yeah. This is what he learned from me. And the other thing was a resilience. If a problem popped up, you just deal with it head on. If you have adversity, you work your way through the, whether it's family, whether it's health, whether it's whatever it is, you just kind of deal with the problem head on. If you can turn it into an opportunity, but you're very realistic, very pragmatic mm. and just deal with it. And I guess the last thing was he felt, and I think it was true, family always came first, but he was in the early generation, right? I think with Alex, he understood that family got less time and less energy, but it was still really important. And Alex was funny. Alex remembered a lot of things that we did. We brought all of the family to Cincinnati. My mother was not doing well from a health standpoint, multiple strokes, cancer at the end of life. My father was healthier, but not doing well because my mom couldn't take care of him anymore. And he was the generation that couldn't boil water, hard boil an egg or do anything but pour dry cereal out of the box and some milk on top of it. We brought Margaret's mom and sister to Cincinnati, but we basically put all the generations together and took care of everybody. And he remembered that, and he remembered the cookouts and the dinners and all that kind of stuff and how Sunday was set aside and dedicated to family. And I guess the other thing <laughs> he remembered was that kind of the 24-7 thing we were talking about. One of the things I always tried to 
figure out was what motivates team members and what motivates P&G or because P&G is because none of us ever worked for money, right? None of us ever worked for fame. None of us worked for fortune. You could always make more fortune doing something else, but we worked for a lot of Maslow's highest level hierarchy of needs. Self-actualization, yeah. Self-actualization, right? And so one of the things I moved to was I was always trying to find some way to recognize people and thank people and reward them. And uh, I had this huge comic book collection. So for a couple of years, I would dutifully go through my kind of 25 or 30 direct reports and I would work extra hard to find the comic book character and the comic book issue and story <laughs> that they reminded me of, right? And I had this humongous vinyl uh, record collection. I probably had 545 RPM. I probably had a thousand LPs. And uh, so after I'd worked through my comic collection for two or three years, I moved to the records. And when I used the 45s, I tried to find a song or an artist or a message <laughs> that the individual reminded me of. And I, I think several of them just thought it was so much fun and I think they appreciated the personal attention. And Alex said, I couldn't believe how much time you spent. On the weekend, we'd be watching a football game or something, and you'd be sorting through the records, trying to get the perfect record for Susan or the thinking about the person, right? For Rob or the perfect, yeah. And he said they were all over like the the den floor, right? And he wasn't allowed to step where the records were. <laughs> Can break the record, right? You guys got to make so, the right choice, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I mean, it's like I said, two only children in a way, two different families at two different stages, two very different jobs that I was trying to do. And uh, now we're in the next chapter. It's my chapter is focused on the grandkids. I love to be with my kids. We miss Thanksgiving this year. We miss Christmas this year for a whole bunch of reasons. Everybody felt pretty okay. And we got together for a long weekend over president's weekend. And it was a lot of, fun. actually, that was a lot of fun. So what I did is I sent a book for the adults to read, Lincoln on the Verge, right? Because it was Lincoln's birthday over President's Weekend. And then we all sat down and watched the Spielberg movie, Lincoln, which none of my grandkids had seen. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be like taking medicine. But they all loved the movie. <laughs> they all loved the movie. And I went, whoa, this is great. Papa had a hit. Usually he misses when he pulls out the movies, but this one worked. So it was fun. Nice. And now a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to Anand Palagar with Leading to Win, a really unique pro bono platform founded and designed by A.G. Lafley. Leading to Win was built to serve the needs of founders and owners of small businesses and nonprofits, the vast majority of which are individuals and freelancers, one of the fastest growing segments of our economy. So Anand, how did you get involved with AG? Well, it's a really funny story, Roman. About three years ago, I got a call from an unlisted number. On the other end of that line was a gentleman who introduced himself as AG Lafley. Now, you didn't have to work at P&G to know who AG is. AG had called to ask me if I'd be interested in working with him on a massive community initiative called the Sarasota Bayfront Planning Organization. Someone had told him that I had a similar passion towards improving our community, and that's ultimately how we met. Over the ensuing years, we created the Bay brand together, and I led the team behind its communications and community activation efforts. Personally, as a small business entrepreneur, it's incredibly rare to get the opportunity to work in the trenches with a global CEO like AG, particularly one who commands such a unique perspective on business and strategy. Watching each phase of the park unfold was like getting an education in business, strategy, and communications, and it has been a career highlight for me personally and professionally. 
That is so amazing. So how did that turn into what you're both doing now with Leading to Win? Fast forward to last year, and during the height of the pandemic, my conversations with AG began to evolve around the crushing state of affairs of the small business climate in specific industries and phases of evolution. AG wanted to share his knowledge to address key principles, tactics, and strategies that he had firsthand experience with during moments of crisis. And it was this, coupled with the aspirational challenge to think broader and cultivate a conversation that led to how Leading to Win was born. What AG successfully identified was that to succeed as proprietors or managers of small, for, and not-for-profit businesses, you have to fundamentally improve your leadership. In AG's articles, you'll find the foundational pillars of leadership and business strategy, coupled with his own insights from his many years in leadership. AG fundamentally believes there are three tasks of the leaders, leading the thinking for the business, also known as the strategy, leading the decision-making, and leading the doing or execution. That sounds a lot like the AG so many of us know. There's always a list of three. You know, I guess some things never change. And so in Leading to Win, we've built a collection of articles and short-form reads that highlight the philosophy that effective leaders are made, not born. Anyone can learn to lead more effectively to get more consistent, better results. Our sole objective is to share concepts and principles, best practices, and practical management tools that we know deliver better outcome and results. AGs of practitioners actually use the concepts practices and has first-hand experience with what works and just as importantly what doesn't work. So launching in the midst of a pandemic, how does Leading to Win even identify the relevant content that can actually help this target audience of entrepreneurs? Now more than ever, this sort of work is needed by everyday entrepreneurs, managers, and business owners that are working hard every day to better their business and serve their consumers. We want to know what you're struggling with, where you're facing challenges, what's ultimately keeping you up at night, and that's how we can help. The core facet of Leading to Win is a conversational publishing platform. We welcome content that we believe furthers our objectives and contributes meaningfully to our purpose. We welcome feedback and input, and most importantly, questions. We may choose from time to time to publish thoughtful commentary, important questions, as well as answers to those questions that we believe could broadly benefit the community we intend to serve. So how does someone gain access to Leading to Win and what can they expect? Well, you can visit us at leadingtowin.com. There you'll find articles, resources, and videos straight from an industry leader. And if you're a manager, startup entrepreneur, or freelancer, we want to hear from you. So feel free to reach out with an email or even a video. We'd love to hear from you. That's so great. Well, Anand, thank you so much for all the great work that you, AG, and the entire Leading to Win team are doing for the entrepreneurial community. Thank you for the opportunity, Raman. And now, back to our show. If you had an email time machine, what advice would you give to your younger self? That guy coming out of HBS, done with the Navy, walking into Cincinnati. Okay, and at the risk of maybe a bit predictable, but I believe it deeply, and it was the motto of Hamilton College and from the Oracle at Delphi. I think the most powerful thing that I can do is know myself and then have the self-awareness and the courage to be my best self. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to do at 74. And maybe with a tiny bit more success, although I'm not a very good tennis player, I don't recommend picking <laughs> up a tennis racket at age 53. But I was slow to come to really knowing myself. I mean, there's this period of self-realization and self-awareness that goes on, right? Probably for me until I was 25 or 30. 
And then even once you get there, I think the watershed in not quitting and hanging in there hmm. for P&G, but mostly for myself, frankly, was having the courage to be myself hmm. and take the personal risk and try to do things that I just felt very deeply needed to be done and would result in a better result all the way around. And so I think that's hard. It's easy to say. A lot of things are easy to say, right? The five choices of a great strategy are easy to say. They're hard to do. I think knowing yourself and, and really having the guts, having the courage, having the conviction to be yourself, even when it's kind of easier to take another way out is, is still pretty good advice. Yeah. So that would be in my email time bottle, whatever. Yeah. Well, and I want to flip the question on the outside world. I mean, the world uh, goes without saying is crazy right now. It's been a very long year and we've got a very long year ahead of us. You're a purpose-driven leader. You've led, you continue to inspire professionals at big companies and small companies. But as we look to our leaders now who are kind of shaping what we're about to face, what advice would you give them to kind of face the moment we're in right now? Yeah. Well, I guess I would go to focus on the few things that are really going to make the biggest difference. Mm -hmm. And I don't think from a policy standpoint, what needs to be done at the federal level is rocket science. Okay. I think we needed the relief package that went through. We could argue about some of the details about whether all the money is going to be spent as efficiently as possible, but we needed that injection of capital and cash to those who need it most. And I think individuals in need and small businesses were the, the most needy. As we talked earlier, I think infrastructure has been a priority for at least 20 years, maybe longer. So let's like, hey, step up to it, right? I think climate change and environmental sustainability, obviously one of the biggest, most complex, toughest, and critical problems slash opportunities in front of us. I wish we took it on as more of an opportunity and that will yield to, I believe, incredible innovation. Now, a couple of things were incredibly heartening. Look how fast, look how fast the drug companies came up with vaccines. And frankly, despite all the yammying locally and in the media, we've done a pretty good job of getting them distributed. Hasn't been perfect. Everybody hasn't maybe gotten it exactly when they wanted it or or thought they should get it. But I think when all said and done, we're going to look back on the vaccination piece and we're going to look back. I'm kind of wandering on you, but I really do come back to what does the citizen really need in the U.S.? And I would argue they need basic opportunity and they need a basic shot at a fair wage and a fair living. And then what do we need? What can government do? And I think it's enabling infrastructure I think it's enabling the huge step forward we need to take on the climate and environmental side. And I guess the last thing I would say, and honestly, I wish they'd stay out of a lot of the rest of it. I'm a capitalist. <laughs> I believe in democracy. What did Churchill say? It's the worst system until you compare it to all others, something like that. I think capitalism breeds entrepreneurship. I think it breeds innovation and inventiveness. And I think that you take some of the creative destruction with the good. And as long as you can provide an acceptable safety net for those who need it, it's worth it. Don't give up on the system. Mm. Capitalism and democracy have served us well. Experiment with private public partnerships. Really understand 
the two or three things that are going to improve citizens' lives the most. And doggone it, focus on those few things and make them happen and just let all the other stuff fall by the wayside. You just don't need to do it. It's not that important. Yeah. So what excites you about the future, AG? Well, I think a few things. One is every generation is more talented, better educated, and I believe has more opportunity than the one before. You might have to open your mind to different possibilities. You might have to be willing to migrate or immigrate or change to seize that opportunity. But I I really do believe that the opportunities far exceed the problems. I guess the second thing is I'm just so interested in invention and innovations, and we could reel off a dozen that still have the potential to change the world in the next five, 10 or 20 years that have already been invented. Okay. We just need to turn the inventions into applied innovation. And I guess the third thing is that most of our problems are, if you really think about them and do a little jujitsu, really opportunities. And I think that was something that served us well at P&G. You start with the problem, you define the problem, and then you look at the problem again and say, okay, how could this problem actually be turned on its side or turned on its head mm-hmm, or twisted mm-hmm. this way or, or looked at that way and actually become an opportunity. And there were so many things at PNG that were problems. Zero phosphate legislation, we turned into winning in liquid detergents and we were way behind WISC. I can just think of so many times when crises at PNG led to extraordinary efforts. We were always better in crisis. We had a hard time with the status quo. But give us a good earthquake, give us a good hurricane, give us a good competitive challenge. That's what the company was really good at. That's when people responded. That's when they turned to, that's when the innovation came and that's when we tended to excel. And I believe the same about the future. So I'm an optimist, incurable optimist. (laughs) AG, this has been a fantastic conversation. We've only got a few more minutes left. So I want to shift gears a little bit more to... A couple of fun questions. What's something about you that surprises people? I'm funnier than I think a lot of people think, but Diana says that I shouldn't try my jokes out on people because <laughs> they're not as funny as I think they are. No, I, I think I already alluded to one. I'm like a, a collector, right? Like, so I was a junkie on comic books. I was a junkie. I still have a complete top baseball card collection. What was your favorite comic book series? What character? My favorite one was Batman. My favorite one was Batman. And you'll get a kick out of this. My mother wouldn't let us read those kinds of comic books, right? (laughs) So the only comic book that was allowed in the car or in the house, of course, I had all my other comic books in the house too. She just never found them, were Classics Illustrated, which is probably before your time, but I've almost completed my collection of original classics illustrated. So I have these kind of goofy things. I collect first editions books. So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm into that. And I guess uh, a couple other things. I visited every baseball stadium in America and I did it with a very good friend who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. So I'm really glad we, we got it done. I have a Vespa. I had a Vespa when I was 15. I have a Vespa now. I rode it a lot more and a lot more recklessly when I was 15 <laughs> and without a helmet, which I shouldn't tell anybody because I would kill my grandkids if they got on a bicycle without a helmet. But I, I still ride it now. I'm just more careful. Yeah. It's more dangerous out there, right? On a bike. And Diana and I do, she does triathlons and I tag along. So nice. I do a couple of Olympics and we do a half every year. It just keeps me honest, keeps me moving. So those are probably some of the things. What's your go-to media escape? Are you more of a movies, book, or TV guy? 
I'm a movies junkie. So what's a movie that you really relate to that has characters that, that you can identify with? Oh my goodness. Well, I've probably watched every Hitchcock movie <laughs> a bajillion times, right? North by Northwest uh, you, is a personal favorite of mine. Oh, it's awesome. Vertigo. William Wyler, I love his movies. John Ford, I love his movies. But if I had to just pick, I sort of went through all the Vietnam era movies when Ken Burns came out and did his Vietnam documentary, which might have been the best one, including the Civil War one. But I'll, I'll give you two movies that I like, which are both Australian movies. One's called Breaker Morant. It's about the Boer War. It's about a couple of junior Aussie officers that are fighting in the outback. And the question is, did they commit a war crime or not? And were they uniquely responsible for it? Or was it part and parcel of the British colonial empire system? So it's a very interesting movie. Complicated, great characters, great acting. And my other two favorites are Gallipoli, which is another Australian movie. Again, it's a classic. The British screw up the strategy. They sacrificed the Australians. They always sacrificed the colonials in their wars. I'm smiling. And then before every race, we watch Chariots of Fire. Schmaltzy, <laughs> you know, love it. Love that goofy music in the background. Love the fact that in the end, they win the race. That kind of stuff that's uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> what was your favorite thing to do in Cincinnati? Oh, that's easy. Skyline Chili, Sorrento's Pizza, Graters and Aglamisi's Ice Cream, Reds Games on a summer afternoon, X Basketball. Nice. Riding my bike all over town and up and down the trail. Yeah, there was so much. Played a lot of soccer, a lot of football, a lot of basketball and softball in Cincinnati. I, I really liked Cincinnati. I was in and out of there for 25 years. We always lived in the city. Yeah. We always lived in one of the old neighborhoods. It's a special place. It's a surprisingly good town. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, surprisingly On oh, so town. many of us, I like to say, we became grownups there <laughs> because of the nature of our oh, yeah. hiring. Who's someone out there that you would still want to get a coffee with? <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Historical figures? Anybody. I'd like to spend time with Da Vinci. I'd have to work on my Italian. It's not that good, but <laughs> he was maybe the quintessential Renaissance man, Renaissance person. I've gotten really into the founding fathers. So anytime I could spend with George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams would be time well spent. I'm a Lincoln junkie. So Time with Lincoln would be great. And then if I were just having fun, probably Drew Brees. He's my favorite undersized, overachieving <laughs> NFL player. John Stockton, he's my favorite undersized, overachieving point guard. I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> yeah, somebody like that. Nice. So yeah, it'd be fun. <laughs> so AJ, last question. What's one final piece of advice or even a challenge that you'd give to the next generation? Okay, I'm probably going to repeat myself, but I'll, <laughs> I'll just say two things. Know yourself, be yourself, have the courage to be yourself, and, and then take it one more step and step out, step up, and, and be the change you want to see in the world around you. It makes me crazy when I sit around and listen to people complain or kvetch or whatever. Get out there and do something about it, right? Mm -hmm. And then I guess the other part we touched on earlier, I really do believe life is chapters and if you get at the end of a chapter and you still have life in you and you're not ready to turn the page to the next chapter, yeah, I'm not going to go to the golf course. Mark Twain was right. Golf is a good walk ruined. I'm not going to sit at home and watch soap operas. Mm -hmm. 
I'll watch a Hitchcock movie, but not a soap opera. <laughs> so I do think really that every chapter brings choices and chances and life is about matching chances and choices. And I, I hope I have the energy and I hope I have the curiosity and I hope I have enough going on mentally and physically. So when I'm in the middle of the last chapter, everything comes to an end and the circle of life is the circle of life. That'd make me happy. <laughs> That's great. Well, AJ, this has been just such a fun conversation covering so many different topics and, and parts of your different chapters. Thank you so much for just making the time, opening it up and continuing to be active and, and trying new things out there. My pleasure. Very stimulating. Appreciate your insights and all my best to your audience. Thanks so much, AG. So that's our conversation with AG Lafley. If you missed part one, where we discussed his early life and his PNG career, you'll find part one in our podcast feed among many other great guests. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode. Sports and basketball in particular can transcend promoting health and wellness, activity, fitness, education, and economic growth. We've seen so many around the world learn these life lessons of hard work and perseverance. And they, what we believe is that basketball, because of the global nature and the reach of the sport, it's a game that's played around the world by boys and girls. It teaches you teamwork. It teaches you respect. It teaches you all those wonderful life lessons. There's this opportunity and obligation to focus on these other benefits that basketball can bring around the world. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG alumni podcast. We'll see you next time.